sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are discussing on By Any Means Necessary a uh, decision from the Supreme Court regarding the EPA and the impacts that that could have on the climate crisis. Also going to be touching on a a recent international feminist brigade to Venezuela and why anti-imperialist feminism is so important in this moment. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment Tech for the People. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, hours after a mass shooting at a 4th of July parade in Illinois left six people dead and dozens of others injured, State Senator Darren Bailey asked Americans to move on and celebrate. The Republican lawmaker said in a statement, let's move on and celebrate the independence of this nation. Bless and protect us as we go about our day celebrating the most amazing country, he said. The most amazing country in which, according to the website gunviolencearchive.org, there have already been 22,423 gun-related deaths in 2022. Of those gun deaths, 315 were mass shootings, with 15 categorized as mass murders. Gunviolence.org defines a mass shooting as four or more people shot or killed, not including the shooter. They note that the FBI does not define mass shooting in any form. They define mass killing, but that includes all forms of weapons, not just guns. And the FBI also defines mass murder as four or more killed in a single event, and at the same time and location, and that includes gun violence, bombings, or any other incident where four or more people are killed. And this is the definition that gunviolence.org uses as a subset of mass shootings. Of those killed in those shootings, 180 children, 11 and younger, were killed. 382 were injured. Teenagers, individuals between 12 and 17 years old, were victims of gun violence, making up 674 victims killed and 1,787 injured. So far this year, there have been 12,276 suicides by gun reported by the Centers for Disease Control. There have been 348 murder-suicides reported. There were 763 unintentional or accidental shootings this year so far, and the police have been involved in incidents where 26 cops have been killed, but 723 alleged suspects were killed, with 192 cops injured and 436 alleged suspects injured. These are all incidents reported from January to July 5th of this year alone. And for comparison to previous years, GVA reports an increase in every gun injury and death-related category from 2014 to 2020. From 12,418 overall gun deaths in 2014 to 19,411 in 2020, from 21,386 gun suicides in 2014 to 23,941 in 2019 because 2020 data is still pending, 
from 22,770 injuries in 2014 to 39,482 in 2020, 269 mass shootings in 2014 to 611 in 2020, 1,650 unintentional shootings in 2014 to 2,315, 603 children killed or injured in 2014 to 999 in 2020, 2,319 teenagers killed or injured in 2014 to 4,142 in 2020. Bless us, Darren Bailey said, referring to God, I suppose. But why would a just God bless a nation that refuses to protect its people from gun violence that is growing every year, taking more lives, more young lives, year after year? And protect us as we go about our day celebrating the most amazing country, he continued. Who exactly is Bailey asking God to protect because the victims of gun violence clearly aren't included in that prayer. Or maybe he's asking that God protect people only as they celebrate the most amazing country and maybe not really worry about protecting folks when they're not doing that. Or don't worry about protecting folks who don't celebrate that. Or it doesn't even matter what he really meant because his comments were tone deaf, illogical, ignorant, and typically American exceptionally dismissive. If this country were truly amazing, we wouldn't be having this conversation. These deaths wouldn't exist in these numbers. But this country is not amazing. It is a gun cult that has no intention of saving its citizens from their destructive worship of the gun or from anything else that it could provide safety for its citizens from, but is too committed to the myth of exceptionalism to deal with the realities of the rot from within that slowly destroys the nation one senseless gun death at a time. Follow Lukeman Nation on patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Tina Landis, an organizer and author of the book Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. Tina, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Tina, here recently, the Supreme Court came down with a ruling that appears to limit the ability of the Environmental Protection Agency or the EPA uh, uh, to limit emissions that are a part and parcel of the climate crisis that we're living in right now. And I was hoping you could help us understand just what uh, uh, is going on here with this Supreme Court decision and what impacts, if any, do you think they will be on the climate situation? Yeah, so the ruling specifically blocks the EPA from setting carbon dioxide limits on power plants through like a blanket regulation that would implement be implemented in the entire nation. Um, it does still allow, it, it basically forces the EPA to now negotiate a rule with each power plant individually instead of a blanket rule, which really makes it much more cumbersome and cost effective or cost costly to um, get these emission reductions. Um, and it's really, you know, 
one more attack by the right wing to really, you know, prop up big coal and, you know, continue profits going to that sector of the fossil fuels. Um, but it, it does still give some leeway for states to set their own rules. So, like, for instance, California has certain regulations that are actually more strict than EPA regulations. So there is a little wiggle room to get around it. And the EPA can also set um, regulations on other types of emissions, other pollutants that come from these coal-fired plants that in the end will achieve the same goal of shutting them down eventually. Because really, the trend is really renewables are becoming more cheap, cheap, cost-effective to implement. Um, there's more advanced technologies coming. And it's really becoming really costly to run these coal-fired plants. So in the end, you know, the, the trajectory is for these to shut down. But I also want to say that you know, I, this is a setback, of course, but, you know, the the U.S. is nowhere near <laughs> achieving its goal of 50 percent reductions in greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Um, they have no plan to get there, you know, even before this ruling. So it really speaks to we need so much more than a regulatory body to deal with climate change. We need a much broader direct government action to address the climate crisis. And yeah, you know, that direct government action seems to me should have come from Congress and should have been uh, uh, implemented under the Obama administration when he uh, implemented his clean power plan or at least introduced it. But but what happened to that clean power plan so that it never got implemented and we are where we are now? Right. So, yeah, the Clean Power Plan was proposed by Obama in 2015, and then the Supreme Court held it up, revoked it in 2016, and then Trump overturned it completely in 2019. And the the Democrats never reproposed it or tried to push it through. I mean, they really could have, you know, when Biden came in, he could have done so much more. He could have immediately declared a climate emergency, could have, you know, impo- yeah, put through legislation that actually addressed climate change and overturn the filibuster, which it requires a 60, you know, 60 votes in the Senate to pass anything, um, which is really holding up any progressive legislation from going through. Um, so there are so many things, more things that could be done. I mean, Obama's clean power plan, I just have to say, was had pretty weak um, goals and through just through developments, they've kind of already been achieved. So it wasn't the most aggressive plan to begin with. We need much more than that. But um, yeah, the Democrats, I feel like these rulings, even the, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, all these things that the Supreme Court is ruling on, the Democrats are just throwing up their hands like, oh, now our hands are tied. We really can't do anything about this. And it's, it's, <laughs> it's false because there could be so much more done with direct legislation, executive orders, like I said, declaring a climate emergency. There could be real action taken by the government directly. Yeah, and I'm glad you raised that. And this is a point that we hit on a lot here on the show, Tina. The fact that the Democrats, uh, uh, even when in power and when they have the leverage to actually achieve things for their base that they claim to care so much about, they simply choose to uh, uh, forfeit. And while they say or make it seem like there's nothing that they can do, they don't waste any time uh, begging people for money in, in their emails and saying how, well, the only real solution is to continue to, to vote Democrat 
I guess we can bring in more people who won't actually do anything about the problem. And that's a part of why I think that the climate crisis, at least the, the United States role in it, which is considerable, I think I should say, is because when we look at the political mainstream, we have a far right Republican Party that seems hell bent on further exacerbating the climate crisis and a center right Democrat Party that refuses to actually fight on this issue. And uh, all they can do, like you say, like uh, uh, the Clean Water Act and things like that, you know, these paltry little bits of um, uh, uh, legislation that don't even begin to really address the issue. And I'm also thinking, Tina, about some of the recent um, international meetings like the EU summit and the G7, where I feel like we continue to see different pronouncements around the climate. But but none of them, even as they're taking this posture, like they're really taking climate seriously this time. None of them really uh, uh, seem focused or really at all even acknowledging the central and critical role of capital in uh, the climate crisis. And I feel like if that's not the starting point, then anything else just feels like it's, you know, either painting around the corners or just trying to make it appear like they're trying to do something about climate because they recognize that it's a real issue and they understand that they have to at least look like they're doing something. And so basically we're treated to a dog and pony show or political theater instead of real solutions while we have this problem raging that literally it would be impactful on the whole of humanity. And so it seems then, Tina, that um, uh, uh, some force, some element, some uh, organized sort of a group outside of the political mainstream in the United States will really have to, to take charge as far as the issue in this country because we see what our so-called leaders are doing. And it's just, uh, I think, sort of further pushing us into this a reality of climate catastrophe. Yeah, that's totally correct. I mean, the U.S. and other capitalist governments are actually ramping up oil production right now. And, you know, the U.N. said that we're on track to exceed three degrees Celsius warming, which would mean an uninhabitable world due to this just continued business as usual production of fossil fuels. And, and yes, it will take, you know, the EPA, the only reason we have the EPA in the first place is because of the mass movement of people in the 60s and 70s that pushed for environmental regulations because things were so bad. We need to resurrect that movement. We need a broad people's movement that's linking across borders, across struggles, and really uniting to, to demand that our government stop this drive to our extinction. You know, they're really not doing anything adequate to, to resolve this. And it, it really will take the, the people to, to make it happen. And, and in the end, we need to get rid of capitalism because capitalism relies on endless growth, endless profits, endless ex exploitation of the planet. You, that is not sustainable uh, on a finite a planet with finite resources. We are, it's driving us over the edge, and, and it can't do anything else. Like, that is its nature. So, yeah, the, the, our leaders try to tweak things around the edges, you know, these regulations, these incentives for corporations to change, carbon trading schemes, you know, all these little tweaks that really just – hold up business as usual while giving the perception that change is happening when it's really not. There's not, we need transformational change of how we live on this planet, not these little tweaking, tweaking around the edges. It's really not getting us anywhere. And we're fast approaching, you know, tipping points with temperatures and, you know, deforestation and all these things, right? 
Yeah, definitely. And it's I think it's important that you locate the central issue with the capitalist system itself. And as you noted earlier, when we talk about the role of the Supreme Court in this, not just in this EPA decision, but also the recent, of course, issue of abortion rights, which has just sparked a mass demonstration in the streets trying to resist resist this fighting for, you know, women's liberation and things like that. I mean, here again, we have the Supreme Court in unelected body who uh, basically serve as the last line of defense for the capitalist class. And as it pertains to the climate, I think it sort of drives home, Tina, the class character of the climate issue and who's responsible for really exacerbating this problem and who uh, is feeling the consequences of climate catastrophe, because I feel like it, it falls distinctly along some uh, class lines. And I feel like sort of uh, uh, highlighting that or elucidating that sort of makes even clear the role that uh, capitalism plays here. Right. This is a body of unelected <laughs> judges sitting on the Supreme Court that have no expertise in science or public health. And they're making these rulings about that inf- impact millions and millions of people. Um, and the globe, really, with climate change. And, and it's so undemocratic. And, and it does. It represent, they represent the, the, the interests of the ruling class. They represent the interests of profit-making. And they do every, all of their rulings are impacted by that lens. That is to say, without a mass, mass people's movement, to, you know, pushing them to rule progressively. But, yeah, it's it's... And this is this is the problem with this, these rulings. Like they're using this major questions doctrine, which which is really like allowing them to undermine regulatory agencies, not just the EPA. Um, you know, it could have impacted the FDA. It already impacted OSHA with the COVID work safety um, rules, and and they really have no expertise, and they're like superseding these these regulatory bodies of experts on these issues, right? And instead and putting the entire population at risk. And it's really, yeah, it's all in the interest of the ruling class because they can go about their lives so far largely unaffected by climate change. It's the working class that are impacted. It's the working class that are losing their homes and floods and fires and, like, left destitute. Um, and, and the ruling class doesn't care. <laughs> they show no concern about the working class in this country. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the fact that uh, this ruling basically, as as we've been talking about, kicks the authority back to the states where some states have more stringent uh, regulations than others. What does this do immediately, aside from, you know, the lasting impacts of climate change? What does this ruling do immediately to those frontline communities that are already struggling against uh, uh, pollution from power plants and the like? what what does this ruling do for them? How does this make this you know make the struggle more difficult for them in the immediate near term? Yeah, so this ruling more affects the bigger picture, the climate change picture. It, it makes it harder for the the U.S. to to meet its emission reduction goals because it's directly looking at carbon dioxide, not other toxic pollutants that more impact the communities surrounding these power plants. Um, so as far as on the ground pollution in these neighborhoods, in these impacted communities, it doesn't necessarily make it worse. It's already bad, right? Because I, I feel like the EPA is already so weak and the regulations are so hard to enforce in a lot of places. And, you know, it's really, there's no repercussions other than some fines um, to these power plants if they exceed emissions. Um, so, you know, Reagan began the weakening of the EPA by cutting a quarter of its budget 
in the eighties. So, um, it's just one more chipping away at it, but, but yes, I mean, these working class communities have always faced the pollution of these, of industry really in their communities. It's the poor communities. It's the community of color, communities of color that are on the front lines of extractive industry and production and all these things. Um, and there absolutely needs to be more protections for people in those areas and cleaning up these toxic sites and things like that. But this ruling specifically is about carbon dioxide, which doesn't, like I said, it, it, it's more about the global impacts, the warming of the planet, um, the runaway climate change that we're headed towards, right, um, that it that will help exacerbate. Yeah, and you know, what's clear, Ting, is that we are in a time where these non-solutions coming from the ruling class and their representatives, these non-solutions from the capitalists, because that's really uh, uh, what's going on and who's really in charge, where that's simply not enough. I think people are very aware of the issue of climate change. And I think there's lots of people who would love to, you know, do something about it and learn more. I feel like definitely we've already seen movements in the streets, young people are talking about how we need real alternatives and, and real solutions. And I know uh, uh, lately, you've uh, been almost on a, a tour of sorts, uh, talking about your uh, uh, book, uh, uh, Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. And I believe you will be coming to uh, the D.C. area here sometime soon. So I was hoping you could tell us more about that and, and where folks can go if they want to you know, be able to uh, come see you, uh, come see a book talk and how they can find out more. Yeah. So, yeah, I've been on a nationwide speaking tour on and off <laughs> um, since April, and I'll be in the Northeast uh, mid-July. I'll be speaking in Washington, D.C. on July 22nd at 6 p.m. at the Justice Center. And you can find out details on that um, on liberationnews.org. The whole tour schedule is, is listed there along with, you know, all the details for each event. So I encourage people to check that out. And you can also purchase my book, Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism, at at liberationnews.org as well. But yeah, it, it's a, it's great to be out there connecting with, with folks around the country who are really concerned about this issue and really want to mobilize and really want to build this work. Um, so yeah, so come check it out if you're in the area. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Tina, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about a recent uh, women's delegation to Venezuela and the women's liberation struggle. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Rachel Domond, a writer and artist for Breaking the Change magazine, which you can check out at BreakingTheChainsMag.org. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Sean. Glad, glad to be here. And we're glad to have you here, Rachel, because recently you were a part of a, a, a delegation of women, I believe, from 20 different countries entitled the Alexandra Kolontai International Feminist Brigade uh, uh, that recently took a, a delegation of women 
to uh, uh, Venezuela. And I was hoping you could break down uh, sort of how this brigade was organized, uh, uh, why it, it came together. What did you all see and really just what this experience was like here? Yeah, definitely. So I, I'm very grateful to have participated um, in the Alexandra Kolontai International Feminist Brigade to Venezuela, which, as you mentioned, brought together uh, 28 women, actually, from 20 countries um, in six regions around the world. And we were brought to Venezuela now, I think, uh, to discuss this issue of women's struggle and, and popular feminism, because you know, we see not just in the United States, but globally, right, that capitalism is in decay. Um, you know, the conditions for the working class are working, uh, are worsening, you know, from rising housing uh, prices to a lack of health care access to, you know, escalating war around the globe and just general poverty growing. And we know that women are always among the hardest hit uh, for all of these issues, Um and so the women from each of the regions, uh, we prepared reports uh, by our region. And we could see that there was a common thread, you know, between all these larger issues that we're seeing um, greatly impacting women um, and simultaneously exacerbating all of these, uh, you know, additional issues that women are disproportionately impacted by, such as, you know, the crisis around child care access uh, and care work to gender-based violence under the pandemic, um, et cetera, et cetera. So really, we were there to um, spend time studying the revolutionary process of Venezuela, uh, one that has actually been uh, clearly articulated as a feminist process uh, that, you know, that's something we could never dream of, of Joe Biden or any of these U.S. ruling class politicians ever explicitly saying, right? And the brigade also really uh, strove to create opportunities, not for us to just exchange with with Venezuela, right? But also women in, in different feminist struggles across the globe in order to really start to articulate what a revolutionary and an anti-imperialist feminism uh, in our current moment can look like um, and, and do. Definitely. And I'm wondering, what did you all see in terms of the Bolivarian revolution and how it grapples with uh, uh, the issue of women's rights and the role of women in uh, uh, really building and sustaining that revolutionary process, particularly while it's uh, under constant attack? Right. Um, so while we were there, we were able to exchange a, a variety of different experiences of struggle with, with the women of Venezuela. Uh, we learned a lot about the resistance that has taken place, you know, against mainly uh, aggression, uh, U.S. imperialism, uh, the blockade that the U.S. imposes on Venezuela that makes it very difficult uh, to, to live and get access to basic uh, needs like, you know, child care or child medicine, um, sanitary products, etc. Uh, we saw women, um, you know, struggling in their communes you know, their their leadership roles on communal councils. We saw women participating in local supply and production councils, you know, in the social missions that historically Chavez, uh, Hugo Chavez had started to really address some of the discrepancies in the country, you know, that existed prior to the revolutionary process, you know, around housing and, you know, et cetera. Uh, we met with, you know, a, a lot of different women, right? Uh, you know, some who have historically been leaders of the revolution, like Maria Leon, 
um, who was uh, the first minister of, of women, uh, you know, under Hugo Chavez. Um, and we also met with women today who are active as academics, as cultural leaders, as women who are really participating in the exercise of, you know, the working class having and, and holding political power, you know, whether that's in elected or appointed positions um, in, in the revolutionary government. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's funding for women to take up projects like, you know, the creation of women's centers. Um, we exchange with women of all the feminist movement, m- many different organizations in all different sectors of society. Um, and all of these are really manifestations of a popular feminism uh, that is empowering women that is, you know, so many women that we mentioned uh, or that we saw mentioned that, you know, the revolution has really made visible women in the contributions that women consistently make to society and has actually empowered them to take up positions of leadership um, and and just power in general um, over their lives, which is, is so, so critical and something that uh, we have so much to learn as the working class here in the United States and I think all across the world. Yeah, and that's what I want to ask you about, Rachel. From what you saw of the uh, involvement of women in the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela and continuing to struggle against uh, U.S. imperialism uh, by the sanctions imposed on the country and continuing to transform that society, how can you characterize the role of uh, women's movement in Venezuela to, uh, you know, compare to the role of women and the struggle we have in trying to transform this society here in this country. What do you think the similarities are and what do you think the differences are that we really need to pay attention to? Yeah, I mean, I think um, throughout history and today, if we're being honest, I mean, women are leaders, are, are the leading force. Um, in all different types of social movements, whether it's against war, whether it's um, for dignified housing, whether it's on the job and in, in, uh, in, in labor unions, etc. And I think historically, especially in the United States, that role has really been um, invisibilized. But I think in Venezuela, it's made very, very public, very in your face that it's women who are taking up this leadership, who are making a difference not just in their neighborhoods, but in their country at large. And I think we have to see here that, uh, you know, there is a a very critical role for women to play in, um, you know, a revolutionary process and a a liberatory process for women. And I think it's very important to understand here as well that the women's, that every issue is a woman's issue, right? Like it's not just about reproductive health or reproductive justice, which is, is very critical. But we also have to see that uh, women's liberation and the struggle for women's liberation must be connected to a working class struggle, a class-based analysis. And that's very clear in um, in the, the Bolivarian revolutionary process. And every single person, every woman, you know, any, any gender of person really made that clear that uh, there has to be a class-based analysis. We can't divorce that reality that we face as working class and poor people here in the United States from the reality and the, the root cause of women's oppression uh, to begin with, right? And I think um, something that I do that, you know, was very clear in my face 
um, and something that I really want to drive home to all the listeners, to just everyone that I can speak to honestly, is really the impact of the U.S. sanctions on Venezuela um, and the really gendered manifestation of it and how it actually does impact our struggle for women's liberation here in the United States. You know, the U.S. is 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 seeking to um, destabilize and destroy the the Bolivarian socialist revolutionary process in Venezuela by attacking people, by attacking communities, by attacking the cultural identity of Venezuela in hopes that, you know, the people will become dissatisfied uh, with their government and, and rebel. But we see that people are actually very so prideful of their revolutionary process, and they actually are very conscious of, um, you know, this, this, these actions, these really criminal actions that the United States government takes which we need to see as an act of war, right, on, on Venezuela as a country, as all of the people. Um, and it's very important to see, you know, the day-to-day impact that it has on regular people. So, as I mentioned, like, it, it, it's women and children who are, who are facing some of the worst impacts of these sanctions. And we need to understand here in the United States that war is not good for anyone. It's not good for me as a working class woman. It's not good for for you, for your mom, your dad, whoever. Um, Because, you know, here here in the U.S., we see, I mean, right now we're we're obviously going through a a pretty uh, difficult time. You know, gas prices are insane. Housing Housing costs continue to rise. There's cuts to all these social programming, and we're still in the middle of the pandemic. Police are being increasingly weaponized and, and militarized. These are all women's issues, right? But somehow the United States government always wants to say that, you know, there's no money to support its people, basically. But there's somehow always money for an increasing military budget. And, and you know, these, these acts of war on Venezuela is, is part of that. Um, and so we need to see that these sanctions are an attack on the entire working class here in the United States, too. Why does the U.S. government have money to, you know, make life difficult for people on the ground in Venezuela but can't, can't support its people here, right? So we need to show solidarity with Venezuelan women. If we really are about this women's liberation here in the United States, we need to see our liberation connected to the women of the world, Right. Um, you know, we have more in common with each other than the United States ruling class than in these, you know, self-proclaimed feminists who are who are in power. And I think uh, the last thing I'll say is that, you know, it's it's something I've I think I through organizing and, and whatnot have have come to realize, but also specifically in visiting Venezuela is that it is impossible to build liberatory conditions for women, for black people for any member of the working class within the framework of capitalism. And it's really for us to, you know, have the imagination, the creativity to envision something outside of capitalism. It's really necessary for us to witness, to study, and also to defend um, these alternative models of, you know, namely revolutionary socialist models like we, like we can see in Venezuela. And I think, um, you know, something that, What's really driven home for me is that another world is possible, right? We can see it. We can see examples of it and the people who are working and creating it and defending it um, in Venezuela. And, you know, right here in the United States, the belly of the beast, it is our duty to to fight for it, you know? 
um, because working class people can, you know, we can take control of our lives. We can we can run the government. We can do all of these things that the, the ruling class always tells us that we're incapable of doing. Uh, but we see it happening in Venezuela and in other places around the world. And I guess, sorry, just to close out. Uh, we were actually fortunate to meet with uh, President Nicolas Maduro uh, during the Feminist Brigade, which is, you know, I could never dream of, I mean, not that I really want to, but Joe Biden would never welcome an international feminist brigade in his country. But Maduro took the time to meet with us. And something that he said and, and sort of closed with that I want to leave you all with is he said, I mean, in Spanish, but I'll, I'll translate it is no longer the century of the imperialists. It is the century of the people. And, you know, after visiting Venezuela, I am certainly hopeful. Oh, I, I know, not just hopeful, but I know that we will win. Women, women's liberation, working class liberation uh, for people here in the United States and across the globe. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Rachel, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by Chris Garoppa, a technologist and co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, as always, great to be back. Thank you. Absolutely. And of course, Chris, in, in recent days, we've been seeing a mass militant, uh, uh, energetic uh, uh, protest and demonstrations here in the United States following the Supreme Court decision around Roe v. Wade, which is a direct attack on uh, uh, abortion rights access and other issues for women in this country. And I think, you know, as often happens in these situations, you know, people take to social media uh, to sort of express their frustration, uh, their rage, and uh, all of the feelings that, you know, uh, seem I think perfectly understandable given the situation, but there was actually a situation with the woman in North Texas where feds, federal agents actually showed up uh, at her home uh, following some angry tweets that she posted following the decision. And I was hoping you could help us understand uh, just what happened here and what do you think it sort of evidences about uh, social media and, you know, uh, uh, these kinds of uh, fraught political moments, uh, uh, to put it one way. Yes, there certainly has been, you know, obviously people in the streets uh, over the decision that overturned Roe, over so many other things that this far right Supreme Court, uh, you know, has decided in just in this term. Um, and, you know, I've certainly been part of that movement and so many people have been part of it. And it's so inspiring to see that the righteous anger and the organizing that's been happening. But as you said, people are turning to social media to also uh, show how angry they are, and they have every right to be angry. We should be angry. But this uh, situation with Madeline Walker from Garland, Texas, uh, she posted a tweet that said, burn 
every government building down right now, slaughter them all. And I've removed some expletives from that since we're on the radio. Um, and then she was uh, visited by federal agents uh, who delivered a letter to her demanding you are advised as of the date of this letter to cease and desist in any conduct deemed harassing or threatening in nature and so on and so forth. And it threatens her with um, criminal charges if she confirms this. Uh, And this has been or if she continues that, that's been confirmed by the Department of Homeland Security that this letter is real. There was some question as to whether, you know, as to its authenticity when it was first posted uh, on Twitter. But uh, DHS has confirmed that it is real. We also have a situation uh, also in Texas from the colony, Texas, uh, a 20 year old man who threatened to uh, kill everyone on the Supreme Court with an AK-47, who actually has been arrested. Uh, He didn't just get a letter. He he has been arrested for making uh, what they call terroristic threats about the Supreme Court. Now, neither of these folks had, you know, their their names or, you know, identifying information, um, you know, full names or anything like that on their accounts. And I think, you know, this is a really significant thing. We often feel when we're online that we are just talking to the people who we know are watching or that we have some protection of anonymity when we're using Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or whatever it is. But that is absolutely not the case. The reality is that the federal government, if they see or get a report of any of these tweets, can actually just go to Twitter and say, hey, we need the IP address of whoever posted this and any other information you have about this account, including, you know, the email address that's on file or whatever it is. From there, they can go to maybe the, you know, whoever owns that IP address that ties it back to your phone or computer and say, who is this person? And then go and arrest them, deliver a threatening letter, whatever they decide to do. This is still the case if, you know, even if you are uh, using an alt account, potentially even if you have a locked account, even if, you know, if somebody sees that uh, who's following you on Twitter, even if your account is set to private, Twitter can still see what you're posting. And that's the key, key thing to keep in mind. What you're posting on social media, no matter what your privacy settings are, are still going to be public to the companies as well as to the state and the agencies that want to look at this information. So really, the way I, I think about it is, you know, let's dance like no one's watching, but tweet like the, the feds are saving every tweet and they're going to read them in court against you. And of course, Chris, this brings up issues of, you know, double standards because, you know, there have been plenty of online threats uh, posted uh, by far right wing white supremacist groups against, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters, folks involved in the 2020 uprising against racist police terrorism in the streets. And I'm thinking in particular um, of a recent, more recent case, the, the two black female election workers, uh, poll workers in Atlanta who were targeted by angry Trump supporters and were threatened with all kinds of violence via the telephone, via text message and on some social media accounts. I mean, what do you have to say to the to the to the the selective way the state seems to be using uh, social media against some but not others and and are seeming to crack down on posts that are coming from uh, those on the left uh, angry at the Supreme Court uh, taking away what little rights 
people had, uh, as opposed to the threats that the right wing and white supremacists and those groups of people have always used social media to propagate. Yeah, it's an absolute hypocrisy, honestly, if we're if we're talking about this. You know, the, the idea that people can go and plan a coup online in the open, uh, and that's what they did before January 6th. It wasn't hard to find it. You know, we knew. Apparently, you know, everyone knew that they were going to, to try to take the Capitol and do some pretty awful things. And, of course, that is being exposed as well through the January 6th hearings. But, you know, the fact that the police did nothing but say, hey, you know, in that case, you know, Capitol Police and, and all those agencies involved said, hey, this might happen. This might be a thing uh, when there was real threats of violence versus, you know, I think you can say the, the anger that people are showing at these, you know, while it's misguided, it is, you know, no people aren't going to be going uh you know, and burning down, you know, federal buildings and things like that. People are angry, but, you know, I think it's, there's significantly less chance that somebody's going to go act on one of those uh, tweets than, than when we see the right, which has often uh, followed up and acted on its things. I mean, why would the state really go after the elements in the country that are supporting it? They're not going to go after the right. Uh, they're not going to go after the white supremacists, the nationalists, uh, and all of that. That's not their, that's not what they do because they, thrive and live on the support of those groups. And they are part of those groups in many cases. And those groups are part of the agencies in many cases. Definitely. And switching gears a little bit, Chris, I was looking at this recent piece in in Bloomberg magazine talking about an algorithm that uh, claims to predict crime in cities in the United States before it even happens. And it feels like every so often we hear about some kind of uh, technology like this. And I feel like it, you know, has a lot of uh, 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 different issues, particularly around uh, race and gender that um, a lot of this different uh, tech tends to have. And I was hoping you could help us understand just what is this computer algorithm? Does it, in fact, uh, do what it purports to do? And what do you see as the potential uh, impacts? Yeah, this is a new study that has come out. It came out towards the end of last week. And I think, you know, many people were kind of just getting ready for the holiday weekend and it kind of didn't get a whole lot of attention. But this, I think it's very important because it's coming out of the University of Chicago and says that it has a 90 percent accuracy in detecting patterns in crime in these. They call them tiled areas. They took a thousand square foot uh, regions of Chicago um, and then, you know, divided them into tiles. Um, I mean, maybe it does. Uh, the paper is not publicly available at this time. Uh, unfortunately, things like this often get caught up behind, you know, these massive paywalls. It costs, you know, a significant amount of money to read the papers themselves. But the interesting things that I did find was that the, the study was funded in part by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. That's DARPA. That's a part of the military system that does all sorts of, you know, advanced research, and that's right in their name, um, you know, stuff that might not be feasible today, but is kind of like, you know, planning for the future. And so I thought that was a really interesting thing uh, about this study, that it was uh, a, com- you know, a partnership between DARPA, uh, University of Chicago, and a couple other uh, organizations. What they're doing in this new tool is they're looking at, you know, these, these patterns in these tiled areas, but none of these tools ever stop and ask the question, why is there crime? They don't look at, 
you know, what is the poverty rate here, except to say that, you know, an area with higher poverty is likely to have more crime. They don't ever say, you know, what's the situation with the schools here? Are there schools dilapidated? Is there community health? Is there enough grocery stores? Are there after school programs? None of these studies ever look at that. And that's what we really need to be studying. We need to be doing advanced study and research on how to address the root causes of crime, which primarily is poverty and everything that comes with that. So, you know, this maybe this uh, this new model is more accurate, but more accurate just means there are going to be more police on the streets instead of actually addressing the real risks that need to be modeled, uh, you know, to actually address the root causes here. Yeah, and even the claims of their model being more accurate are are kind of dubious when uh, the Chicago Sun-Times investigated in 2017 and found that half of the people identified by the model as potential perpetrators had never actually been charged with illegal gun possession when 13 percent had never actually been charged with a serious offense. So it seems to me that that, you know, the the claim of more accurate is obviously not true and it isn't isn't even verifiable, particularly when the the accuracy is supposedly accusing someone of committing or being or, or about to commit a future crime, which in itself is a violation of people's rights. Yeah, I mean, think about what 90 percent accuracy means when you're talking about thousands and tens of thousands of people, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands in a place like Chicago. Ninety percent means one in ten will be wrong. Um, you know, the the, the statistics that, uh, that you just cited are actually from the older model that Chicago used. So, you know, it's not hard to be better than awful. So maybe this model is better than that. Uh, But again, 90% accuracy should not be an acceptable level of accuracy uh, in terms of of this kind of program. Definitely. And there was something else that uh, I was looking at here, Chris, uh, reported in The Intercept, is that uh, Coinbase, a cryptocurrency uh, uh, organization, is reportedly providing geo-tracking data to ICE, to uh, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. And so, I mean, we're talking about a cryptocurrency company, ICE, and uh, geo-tracking data, I mean, that really feels like a recipe for disaster, Chris. I mean, is this as bad as it sounds? It absolutely is uh, as bad as it sounds. Uh, Coinbase is one of those exchanges where you can go, you can buy cryptocurrency, sell, just kind of like, you know, a stock exchange or broker, right? Um, but they do it for cryptocurrency. They are an extremely uh, large and influential company in the sphere. They've made certainly a lot of money for their executives uh, in the boom of crypto, and they're kind of not doing that well now <laughs> in this bust that we continue to see. Um, Coinbase also is one of those companies where the CEO during the uprising a couple years ago sent out a letter saying, uh, leave your politics at home or here to work, um, which is just, you know, completely uh, tone deaf. I mean, he obviously is bringing his politics to work every day by pushing cryptocurrency and by signing these contracts with agencies like ICE. Now, Coinbase says that the information that they're selling to ICE doesn't actually come from their internal 
client or customer information. But instead, it comes from other publicly available information. And what Coinbase does with its Tracer product uh, is kind of put all of that stuff together, puts that all uh, you know together and finds the patterns, finds ways to identify individuals, groups, uh, accounts, and things like that. So this this Coinbase Tracer product isn't even part of you know Coinbase's core business, uh, which is to be a place for people to buy, sell, and hold cryptocurrency. They are doing this simply to be able to sell this product and possibly others like it to agencies like ICE. And we know that they are not the only company doing this. Amazon, Palantir, many, many others also have worked with ICE, with CBP, DHS, with, uh, you know, really uh, federal agencies across the board to provide types of services and products like this. Yeah, you know, and this calls into question for me, uh, this continued refrain I hear from people who claim that, you know, Bitcoin and and cryptocurrency in general is so revolutionary. How can uh, uh, any financial vehicle be revolutionary when the platform that it's being traded on, first of all, when it's based on capitalism at all, but especially when the platform it's being traded on is in collusion with the feds, Chris? Well, you know, it's so interesting when they talk about what, you know, cryptocurrency is being revolutionary. What I think they've always intended is that it's a new way for the wealthy to get wealthier and for the rest of us to stay poor. It is not a matter of crypto, you know, Bitcoin, Monero, Ethereum, pick your favorite. It is not a matter of these uh, these tools being, you know, a, a way for us to liberate ourselves and our communities. I mean, just look at what's been happening in Ecuador, where they've tried they've tried that with, you know, Western intervention, Western corporate intervention, uh, and it's turned out to be pretty much a disaster uh, for parts of that economy. Um, you know, no one is being liberated from, you know, by. Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency, except those who already had the funds to invest in either directly the currency or in the equipment to mine it, which of course is very expensive and really awful for the environment. So the rest of us really continue, whether it was cryptocurrency or something else, to face the consequences uh, of this type of exchange. Yeah, and one last thing I wanted to talk about today, Chris, is being reported that Brandon Carr, the commissioner of the SEC, has written to Google and Apple requesting that uh, the companies remove the TikTok app from their app stores, uh, saying that there's some issue with uh, national security. Uh, what's going on there? Yeah, so, of course, the the argument against TikTok for so long is that uh, TikTok is, you know, it's got relations to the Chinese government through ownership and all of that. And, uh, you know, if you look at what they're actually saying TikTok does, okay, it could possibly collect location data, draft messages, metadata, uh, text images and videos stored on a clipboard, biometric identifiers. I mean, pretty much every app out there can do all those things. Facebook can do all those things. Instagram can do them. Uh, Twitter can do them. You know, it's not a matter of TikTok being unique in the fact that, it, yes, it does collect data. Um, it's a matter of TikTok being a, a stand-in for China in this 
constant, constant um, battle against China. You know, this really what I'm seeing here is a continuation of Trump administration policies, where the Trump State Department wanted to have this kind of clean network process where they said we're going to have no Chinese equipment, no Chinese software, no Chinese apps available um, across the entire U.S. And, you know, even though we are under Biden, we are continuing to see the attacks on China actually ramp up as we're seeing, you know, let's not forget NATO is naming China as an enemy. Um, So, yeah, the the FCC commissioner here is doing, I guess you could say he's doing his part in this uh, drive towards global international conflict um, by trying to get TikTok removed. Uh, And if we remember, you know, there's a few years ago, the Trump administration tried to get uh, TikTok put under U.S. ownership to to force ByteDance to sell it. That was actually ruled against. Uh, They didn't have to do that. So does TikTok have concerning privacy practices? Absolutely. So does Facebook. So does Instagram. The only reason TikTok is being singled out here is because it is not a U.S. company. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, July 5th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call, Libra, by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary. Here in Washington, D.C., you can do that by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik. Mave, that's M-A-V-E, dot digital, and you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday, and we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble, rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live, and remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time, Today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. When at the top of the hour today, protests continue in Akron, Ohio, uh, following the uh, murder of a 25-year-old black man, Jalen Walker, uh, here recently, who was unarmed and running away from police when eight officers 
fired approximately 90 shots at him with 60 of those shots uh, uh, striking him. And uh, I believe we mentioned this on the uh, show last week about how, according to police, uh, Akron police, they they pulled him over for uh, traffic and equipment violation. They claimed that uh, Walker fired a shot from inside his vehicle, but reportedly body cam footage shows that Walker was unarmed when he was killed. And an autopsy report actually showed that Walter was handcuffed after being shot 60 times. His body was handcuffed. This is this is policing inside the United States. And after a, a mass protest, there was a state of emergency declared and uh, a curfew as well. I think it's also worth noting how uh, uh, Walker's racist police killing uh, coincides with the mass shooting in Highland Park, uh, Illinois, where the uh, a suspect, uh, the white shooter, killed six people and injured several others, but was taken into custody without a single shot being fired. And so you have an unarmed black man that had almost 100 shots fired at him, 60 of them hitting him, killing him, then handcuffing his body. And here you have a mass shooter who walks away without a scratch. And I just feel like that tells you a lot about uh, the social and the political situation here in the U.S. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Carlos Martinez, author and activist, co-founder of No Cold War and co-editor of Friends of Socialist China. Carlos, thanks so much for joining us. Good afternoon, Sean and Jackie. Great to be back with you again. Absolutely. And it's great to have you back, Carlos. And I really wanted to to speak with you today, Carlos, because I wanted to get your your thoughts and your analysis on this recent spate of international meetings that we've been seeing here. I mean, we had the recent EU summit. Uh, we had the the G7 summit, the NATO summit, I think most recently. And I feel like I should also mention uh, a meeting of the BRICS countries. And particularly with those first three I mentioned, I mean, all of them, all three, the EU summit, the G7 and the NATO all seem to be based around uh, uh, discussing the war in Ukraine and basically the best way to continue uh, continue to uh, uh, support that war effort, uh, seemingly indefinitely, and also sort of a broader commentary on Russia and China in and of itself. And one thing that stood out to me, because I had an opportunity to be in uh, Brussels and and then Munich uh, uh, covering the EU summit and the G7 respectively, and these European governments and the West seem to really be focused in asking themselves some serious questions about how is it that they can continue to sanction Russia into oblivion without exacerbating the economic situations within their own countries. And, you know, they've got their plans and whatnot. But as of this moment, it's difficult for me to see how that's even really possible. And I feel like this is a part of the reason why, at least in my opinion, in the U.S. and the West, the opinions around the Ukraine war, I think, are are starting to turn at least somewhat. I mean, even in The Hill uh, recently, they uh, published an opinion piece entitled Have Sanctions Against Russia Boomerang. And so to start off, Carlos, and this is kind of a broad question, I'm wondering how you sort of contextualize these international meetings and what do you think it means in terms of the war in Ukraine and the U.S. imperialist war drive with Russia? Thanks a lot, Sean. Uh, you know, in the last uh, the last week or two, we had the NATO summit and the BRICS summit, I think more or less concurrently. And it was just really interesting to see, like you say, this stark contrast between the two, because 
what was the NATO summit all about? On the one hand, as you've said, it, it it was about fomenting this massive escalation against both Russia and China, the deployment of 300,000 frontline troops in Eastern Europe, how to turn a proxy war into a full-blown war, how to escalate the new Cold War, and 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 to create this sort of bipolar world where you've got, on the one hand, a sort of hegemonic United States and its hangers-on, and then the so-called authoritarian states on the other. They're talking about how to uh, counter this supposedly aggressive China, which, you know, is a very strange idea, given that the last time China went to war was in 1979 for a very limited border dispute with Vietnam that I would describe as, a sort, you know, an, an extremely unfortunate fallout of the Sino-Soviet split. But that's 43 years ago. How many wars has the US been involved in since then? How many millions have died around the world due to real, actually existing aggression by the US and its allies. China's military budget is less than a quarter of that of the US, in spite of its having a population four and a half times larger, and in spite of the, the reality of, of living um, with a US-led encirclement campaign against it. The US has got over 800 foreign military bases. China's got one. NATO has waged genocidal wars in Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya, you know, China hasn't done those things. China focuses on building mutually beneficial relationships with countries throughout the global south. You know, it's, it's best known for supplying not bombs, but COVID vaccines, bridges, roads, high-speed rail, network infrastructure, and so on. So for NATO to describe China as an aggressive power is nothing is nothing short of farcical. Um, so, you know, that's, that's NATO. But what were the Brits talking about? You know, the, their discussion is kind of the polar opposite of NATO. They're discussing the prospects for peace, how to encourage a, a diplomatic, a negotiated, a negotiated solution to the crisis in Ukraine, how to increase the voice of the developing world in uh, the international framework, the international institutions, how to oppose hegemony, how to develop a fairer, a more equal, um, a more democratic system of international relations, how to cooperate against COVID, against future pandemics, against climate breakdown, how to share development strategies. So you've got this total disparity between the two. And, and that's not an accident and it's not a coincidence and it's not it's not a function of people in BRICS countries just being nicer or more morally grounded people. It's a reflection of the reality of global politics in which there are two major contesting visions. On the one hand, the consolidation and expansion of US-led imperialism, the project for a new American century, the new Cold War, the so-called uh, rules-based international order, which actually means the rest of the world submitting to US diktat. And on the other hand, there's <clears throat> multilateralism, there's multipolarity, there's respect and defense of the UN Charter, there's sovereign development, there's a trajectory towards peace, towards equality, dignity, and cooperation in international relations. And, and that's what the BRICS represents. Even though within BRICS, you've got different social systems, you've got different economic visions, you've got ideological differences, and you know, particularly now you know, over the last few years that you've got right-wing governments in India and Brazil. But nonetheless, there's a sort of collective interest in and, and a 
determination to bring about a multipolar world, to overcome those legacies of colonialism and imperialism, to work together to find solutions to the major, major outstanding problems that humanity faces in terms of climate change, poverty, nuclear weapons, and so on. And you know, super interesting to see that there was also a lot of discussion about expanding BRICS and setting up this BRICS plus formation. I know Iran has applied, applied to join. Argentina has applied to a join, and, and, and the current members seem to be open to the idea of including these new members. Um, so that's really interesting. And you can contrast that with NATO expanding to include Sweden and Finland, um, and that's expanding in the name of hegemony, whereas BRICS is expanding in the name of multipolarity. So yeah, as I say, a, a very stark contrast. Yeah, not only is the contrast stark between the way the BRICS countries are operating, uh, as you said, together to find uh, common solutions to the pressing problems of the world, but, you know, the contrast is also in uh, the way the U.S. and the other, the countries in the rest of the world respond to uh, the United States in particular. I mean, because we, we recognize that even as we're seeing cracks in in the facade of the reasons behind the Ukraine war starting to to show, there's still, at least in this country, an inordinate amount of support for, uh, you know, the, Russia must be stopped in Ukraine. Um, and a part of uh, this ideology, I think, is certainly this, this anti-Putin, uh, uh, anti-Russia hysteria that's been stirred up in this country at least since 2016 uh, and is a revival of, of the old uh, anti-Soviet, uh, anti-communism uh, from the 40s and the 50s. But with the United States government, uh, government continuing its typical uh, uh, military diplomacy, the the imperialist diplomacy of militarism and threats and, and sanctions uh, against uh, Russia, has that backfired? I, I feel like uh, as we're seeing the U.S. economy falter badly, crumble uh, uh, before our very eyes, I don't feel like the same thing is happening in Russia, although Clearly, the U.S. government intended for that to happen. And I'm wondering if those sanctions have boomeranged uh, that the U.S. imposed on Russia and what that means for deepening uh, the multipolarity uh, uh, that is developing around the world. Yeah, thanks, Jackie. I think that's a really interesting and a really important point, because this sanctions regime that's been imposed by the U.S. and that it's sort of forced Europe to go along with, completely against Europe's own interests. You know, it's it's fine for the US. The US has got its own source of energy in the form of uh, fracked shale gas. Um, it's fine for Australia, it's fine for Canada, it's fine for New Zealand. But for Western Europe, for the European Union to go along with these unprecedented and unilateral and illegal sanctions against Russia and Belarus is actually you know, a, a major act of, of self-harm on the part of Europe. And it's it's a sort of statement that our role in preserving American hegemony is more important to us than our basic well-being, the well-being of our people, even the well-being of European capitalism. You know, uh, you know a very serious crisis is almost certainly going to hit 
in Europe, uh, a fuel crisis is going to hit in Europe this this winter. Already in a country like Britain, it's more than 10,000 elder people that die every single year because they can't afford to heat their houses. That number can be expected to increase by an order of magnitude if we carry on uh, if we carry on with these unprecedented sanctions, and that's going to be expanded throughout Western Europe. So these these are very dangerous times. But it is really interesting that the sanctions regime doesn't seem to have the impact that it once did. You know, for a start, these sanctions aren't supported outside the West, you know, outside North America, outside Western Europe, outside Australia, New Zealand. You know, and the hilarious thing is we see all these news reports about the US and the EU were worried that countries in Africa and elsewhere are maybe a bit too susceptible to Russian propaganda about the food crisis, and they've been calling for an end to sanctions. And, you know, it's, there's this usual, not very subtle racism that that these gullible Africans will believe anything, because of course we don't think they're clever enough to assess the facts for themselves and draw appropriate conclusions, which is what they're doing. But. The vast majority of African countries don't support these sanctions. The vast majority of Middle Eastern countries don't support these sanctions. The vast majority of Asian countries, Latin American, Caribbean countries, don't support the sanctions regime. Even the countries that are relatively right-wing, even the countries that have have got strong ties with the West, even countries that have traditionally been in the West camp, aren't going along with this kind of russophobic hysteria. Um, and if you look at the BRICS, then you know, South Africa have, has been very clear from the start. Obviously, South Africa and Russia have got quite long-standing and, and good relations that go back to the Soviet support for the South African liberation struggle. But Cyril, Cyril Ramaphosa, the South African president, said, look, the Ukraine war is primarily the result of NATO's expansion. That's the problem. If you want to solve this crisis, you've got to guarantee Ukraine's neutrality and stop expanding NATO. India you know, has got a right-wing government under Modi, but even India's opposing sanctions. Actually, India also has long-standing relations with Russia that go back a long way. India's been ramping up its trade with Russia. Um, and actually, India's biggest cement producer, which is Ultratech Cement, has started paying for Russian coal in Yuan, the Chinese currency. And that's really significant particularly if we see more of that sort of thing on a number of levels. Firstly, it provides a good way for Russia to bypass the West's unilateral sanctions regime. Second, it means that uh, the, this sort of financial punishment regime centered around cutting Russia out of the SWIFT payment system, basically cutting it out of the global dollar economy, just isn't as powerful as it, as it used to be. Um, and the, the other thing, and there's a side issue here, but it implies that the yuan is gaining legitimacy as a kind of global currency for international transactions. And then fourth, you know, it, it also highlights a certain commonality of interest between China and India, which have had historically complex relationships. But yeah, you, that's India. You've got Brazil also erring on the side of neutrality, also saying, you know, this, yes, we want an end to this war, but we don't want to see Russia punished. We don't want to see Russia weakened, which is what NATO is aiming at. Um, so all in all, the, I think this, this disparity is highlighted, on the one hand, a consolidation of the forces of imperialism around the US. So Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Canada have come very, very firmly into the US camp. And I think that's, you know, 
possibly inevitable development, but nonetheless a negative development. On the other hand, you've got this emerging pattern of coordination and cooperation among the BRICS and more generally among developing countries, among non-aligned countries, among countries that don't fall into this category of the West. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, from what you're saying, Carlos, it's worth remembering that um, this collection of countries that the U.S. sort of uh, describes as, you know, uh, the international rules based order and things like that. I mean, this does not actually represent a global sentiment as it pertains to Russia and this war in Ukraine. And as you note correctly, I feel like that's actually been evident from the very beginning when we see uh, how some of these different governments, some of them that you named, you know, India, South Africa and so on have uh, uh, been responding. And so uh, it just seems objectively true that uh, uh, most uh, of the world uh, just holds a fundamentally different stance on the issue than uh, the U.S. and the West. And interestingly, I mean, NATO uh, Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg actually admitted the fact that um, these designs against Russia, this NATO expansion and, and this demonization, I think, of Vladimir Putin, which I think is, is a part of it, is something that's actually been, you know, a very intentional strategy uh, uh, for years. I mean, he was quoted saying, we actually prepared for this possibility for a long time. It's not as if NATO suddenly woke up on the 24th of February and realized that Russia was dangerous. Now, those of us who have been pointing out this very thing from the very beginning, you know, have been accused of being, you know, a Putin apologist or Kremlin puppets or what have you. But here is the leader of NATO uh, pointing out uh, the very thing. But I want to talk more about this on the other side of our first break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Carlos Martinez. And Carlos, we've been talking about how the orientation and the posture of these recent international meetings, you know, like the NATO summit, the G7 and what have you, uh, is fundamentally different from uh, what we saw from uh, the the BRICS. And I wanted to sort of hone in more on this uh, uh, BRICS aspect of things. And correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's uh, China that, that hosted this latest uh, BRICS meeting, as I believe they hold the uh, rotating uh, presidency of the body. And as you sort of alluded to earlier, we see countries like Iran and Argentina being interested in applying to join the BRICS. I mean, we saw Vladimir Putin uh, 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 encouraging uh, the banks of BRICS countries uh, to join in on the SPFS, which is Russia's alternative to SWIFT, which they got uh, kicked off of uh, following uh, uh, the invasion of Ukraine. And uh, I mean, that reminds me, I feel like I should mention that the G7 used to be the G8 and, and Russia was a member of that body before being kicked off, I believe, in 2014 following the uh, Crimea referendum. And so it seems like all these things really just uh, uh, come full circle to where, you know, the West is just so bound, held and determined to try to destroy Russia. And in the process, 
hurting their own economies and their own people, which I have to believe is only going to intensify the internal contradictions of those countries. While on the other hand, we have these uh, nations that are trying to build real alternatives to, uh, uh, frankly, U.S. world hegemony and uh, the stranglehold of the dollar. And I also feel like the BRICS is just one example of how we're seeing this happen uh, uh, across the world. And so I'm just wondering from that standpoint, Carlos, how you see the, these other countries. I don't think it's any you know, uh, a coincidence that so many of them are in the global South or are otherwise, you know, uh, in the case of uh, uh, Russia, uh, you know, just being straight up targeted by uh, the U.S. and these major powers. And sort of how do you see this from the standpoint of multipolarity and about how these old uh, strong houses of just global power led by the U.S., seem to be weakening themselves by trying desperately to hold on to a dying imperialism. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, the, there's a reason I said earlier that we've got, in addition to the positive aspect of, of the BRICS countries and the developing countries and the global South countries, increasing their coordination, increasing their integration and finding a real kind of a sense of commonality of shared interest. You've also got a negative aspect and, a, and, a, and I would argue a very dangerous aspect to um, to international relations at the moment, which is which is the uh, consolidation of the Western imperialist bloc. I mean, Samir Amin used to talk about the triad, the imperialist triad, which is essentially the U.S., Western Europe, and Japan. Like these these are the main countries that make up the imperialist world system. And I think you know if we if we zoom out. And, and we take a serious look at it on, on a historical basis, we can see that this imperialist triad is getting weaker. You know, it's waning. It's, it will at some point be a thing of the past. You know, it, it deserves to be and it will be consigned to the dustbin of history. However, we're not at that point yet. And you know, there's there's a lot of chaos and there's a lot of unpredictable uh, unpredictability that can happen. And you know, there was a reason Mao Zedong famously said that power grows out of the barrel of a gun, which is that ultimately an awful lot in the world of politics comes down to physical force. And the simple fact is that the U.S. and its allies maintain and are expanding a global military infrastructure of hegemony of domination, of imperialism, of Cold War, with the distinct possibility of turning it into hot war. We talked about the 800 bases, foreign military bases, that the U.S. maintains around the world. There's tens of thousands of U.S. troops in Japan, in occupied Okinawa, in South Korea, in Guam, in Australia, in multiple other places. You've got you know, the U.S.'s uh, record-setting military budget of, I believe, it's over $800 billion now. You know, Biden, the peace president, the progressive, the democratic, the liberal president with the, you know, the, the most aggressive and fearsome military budget in history. There's talk of expanding and upgrading the U.S. military arsenal. They're talking about 300,000 frontline troops, NATO troops in Eastern Europe. Um, we're seeing the expansion of NATO, which is the opposite of what needs to happen. You know, it's an aggressive alliance. It was an instrument of Cold War. 
NATO doesn't have a legitimate role in the world. It doesn't have a legitimate role in in international relations and politics. However, NATO has got a new, a renewed sense of purpose now, and it's expanding and it's consolidating. And furthermore, it's 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 reaching out to the Pacific because you know, what what is AUKUS? What are, what is the Quad? But an attempt to to turn NATO into a sort of global phenomenon. So these are these are definitely dangerous times. Yes, the U.S. and its allies are getting weaker economically. Yes, their their level of influence over the rest of the world is is diminishing. Yes, um, especially with the rise of China, multipolarity is kind of uh, asserting itself and and imposing its reality on the world you know as as a kind of as a unstoppable phenomenon but even though it's unstoppable even though it's got an inevitable trajectory the us will try and prevent it the us is trying to prevent it you know that's what the project for a new american century is all about and that's what the the new cold war is all about you know this is a project that has different names you know in the bush administration it was project for new american century and the obama administration it was the pivot to asia now it's the new cold war or as biden likes to call it the so-called rules-based international order but those projects are all one and the same. And, you know, my friends in the U.S. like to talk about the U.S. having a single party system and the party is called the War Party. That very much resonates. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're, we're definitely we're, we're, we're likely to experience dangerous and complex and unpredictable times. Yeah, definitely. And, and zeroing in on China specifically for uh, a, a moment here, uh, Carlos. And, you know, I maintain that um, when we talk about the, the war in Ukraine, that the U.S. and the West, I think I very purposefully sort of kept China kind of tangentially in the conversation around Ukraine uh, in a, a number of ways. Um, I was looking at a recent piece uh, by your colleague, Danny Haifong on SocialistChina.org, a friend of the show, talking about the this uh, a Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, you know, so sort of still hammering on this, you know, Uyghur genocide, Uyghur slavery thing to basically justify uh, the new Cold War. But one thing that was announced at the G7, which we were talking about earlier, um, was this project called the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment, which is very clearly an alternative to uh, uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative, which has been uh, a, a big part, I think, in China's peace rise and the sort of um, uh, 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 sort of uh, fleshing out, if you will, of China's international stature. And I don't know, like I was being asked about this while I was, you know, overseas and about the impact of it. I mean, to me, it feels like a Johnny come lately sort of deal on behalf of the U.S. and the West. I feel like it's not the first time that we've seen uh, these same entities try to throw a monkey wrench in China's development, oftentimes unsuccessfully. But but as someone who's actually an expert on this uh, on this stuff, uh, uh, Carlos, I mean, what is your estimation of this uh, partnership? for global infrastructure and investment. And I mean, I do think it will make that much of a difference. Well, with all due respect, I don't think it's a very interesting or important phenomenon. You know, there have been a few of these now. We had the Blue Dot Network. I don't know right. if you remember that. It was announced to great fanfare back in 2018. Then last year, the Biden administration and the G7 were talking about this Build Back Better World, we don't talk about that anymore. 
Then just a couple of months ago, they announced the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which everyone kind of recognized immediately um, wasn't going to provide any value whatsoever. Um, and now we've got this new one, as you say, the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. So far, none of these have made any progress, whereas the Belt and Road Initiative started in 2013, so coming up for 10 years, it's already had a huge and global impact in terms of rolling out infrastructure, rolling out connectivity, particularly in the developing world. And you've got 195 countries in the world, over 140 of them have already formally affiliated to the Belt and Road, and that's allowing them to address their substantial needs in terms of physical infrastructure, telecommunications, transport, energy production, energy transmission, renewable energy. Trillions of dollars have been invested and new countries are signing up all the time. You know, Nicaragua signed up recently, Argentina signed up recently. So any alternative from the West really and truly, other than being a bit late, it's quite obviously just for show. They don't have the type of experience China's got in these projects. You know, you go to China and you see the infrastructure that they've built, not just in the big cities, not just in Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen, etc. But you know, you can you can go to Tibet, you can go to Xinjiang, you can go to um, you can go to Inner Mongolia, you can go to Qinghai, and you can see that they've got these amazing roads, these amazing high-speed trains that are connecting the whole country together. Beautiful airports, you know, the 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 physical infrastructure is just phenomenal. So China's got this experience in recent history, you know, in the last 20 years of a huge infrastructure push, especially in the relatively less developed areas in the West and the center of the country. So they've got a very deep understanding of the needs of the rest of the developing world. And and the US and the West in general just doesn't have that, nor do they have those type of close relationships that you need. And you know, not unimportantly, the West doesn't have the capital either. You know, the G7 is talking about targeting $600 billion investment over a few years for this new project. Now, okay, you know, it's a relatively small figure compared to the Belt and Road, but even then, you know, it's 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 not nothing. But there's no way that $600 billion is going to materialize. Where's it supposed to come from? You know, if US institutions have that sort of capital lying around, um, wouldn't it be a good idea to sort out their own infrastructure? You know, for, for decades, they haven't prioritized the real economy. They haven't prioritized upgrading their infrastructure. They haven't prioritized improving living standards. Instead, they prioritized uh, financialized, you know, fake, phony economy, and they prioritized the military-industrial complex. And they're continuing to do that today. You know, yes, they could print some more money, but that's already got them into significant problems, hasn't it, in terms of inflation. So ironically, the only way this new Belt and Road Initiative could work is if they go to the Chinese lending institutions or to the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which would essentially mean working with the Belt and Road. It would essentially mean joining the Belt and Road. That would actually be a really good idea. Um, and, and the Chinese have put that on the table from the very beginning. They say, look, Europe, look, United States, we want you to join the Belt and Road. We know that you've got expertise in high-end, high-quality engineering. We know that you can uh, lead and coordinate projects, particularly in, in the West. But you know, the, the, the US, the G7, the West, 
isn't going to join up with the Belt and Road. They're not going to cooperate with China because what they're trying to do is undermine China and weaken China, demonize China, encircle China. So therefore, this you know so-called partnership for global infrastructure investment, it's you know it's not happening. Even the more sane kind of bourgeois mainstream commentators are saying this is just a propaganda tool. It's got nothing to do with stimulating development. So my pretty strong suspicion is that it will go nowhere. Yeah, you know, and and I can't help but wonder, you know, as we're talking about how China is using the uh, uh, ever-growing resources of the country to uh, actually meet the needs of the people in its country, to raise millions of people, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, to improve the quality of life for people in China, and also doing that in other countries, how do you and, and, and understanding that this country, even though it doesn't have the wealth that China does, isn't doing any of those things with the wealth this country has right now, certainly not for people in this country. How do you see the masses in this country being able to connect these dots? I mean, because there were massive protests at the uh, NATO summit, uh, at the G7 summit that were not televised in, in Western media. We knew about it because we're not Western media. We are uh, alternative media. So people in other countries understand the danger of NATO and the militarism behind the G7 summit and, you know, the dangers of capitalism um, that they are fighting against. But I, I don't I, I see that, of course, uh, as a part of our organizing duty as uh, those inside the imperial core. But but from someone on the outside, what does that look like to you? Uh, well, Jackie, I don't know if you're asking me to unveil my plan for revolution here. But, you know, I mean, you know, I think this is for those of us in the West, you know, I'm in Britain, you guys are in the US. I think this is sort of, it's, it's one of the most important, if not the most important question of our time. Are we going to let our governments get away with subsidizing war and the military industrial complex, while at the same time, we're suffering from and experiencing a very serious, very severe economic crisis. You know, the the cost of living crisis is real. It's affecting tens of millions of people. But what what are our governments doing about it? Uh, what are NATO governments doing about it? They're they're contributing to it. You know, inflation is at a record high. Energy prices are at a record high. Wages are stagnant, which means that real income is going down because money's worth less than it used to be. And of course, the the first instinct of the political class and of the media is to blame Russia, blame China. This is this is nothing new. There's been lots of talk about Shanghai and China's zero COVID strategy and how that's allegedly disrupting supply chains. Um, now, certainly it's true that some supply chains were temporarily disrupted by the lockdown in Shanghai. But one, that ended months ago. Those supply chains are no longer disrupted, but this crisis hasn't magically disappeared. Two, well, you know, let's not forget that four million people are currently alive and well in China who would otherwise be dead if the Chinese government had followed the same sort of COVID strategy as the US or Britain. Three, China's recorded economic growth throughout the pandemic. Its growth rate has 
consistently been several times higher than that of the US. And its inflation levels are completely normal, like around 2%, as opposed to around 9%, which they are in US and Britain. So, and then they, of course, they want to blame Russia, you know, um, because of its military operation in Ukraine. Russia, of course, is a major exporter of gas, of oil, of wheat, of fertilizer, various minerals. Now, if you impose unprecedented illegal economic sanctions on Russia, if you cut out the dollar economy by removing it from the SWIFT system, if you prevent your allies from paying for its goods in rubles, if your priority is to punish and to weaken Russia rather than meeting the basic interests of your own population, well, you know, what did you think was going to happen? So I think the working class, the oppressed communities, the progressive movements in the West, we've got a question to answer. Are we willing to go along with our governments? Are we going to allow ourselves to be fooled? Are we going to allow the wool to be pulled over our eyes? Do we really agree that it's more important to punish Russia and to expand US hegemony over Europe than it is to put food on the table and to put roofs over our, over our heads? That seems to me to be the key mobilizing point now. You know, there's, there's a very clear overlap between our interests and the interests of humanity as a whole. Are we gonna stand with the peoples of the world, particularly the global South, particularly the developing world, or are we gonna stand with our own ruling classes that have been exploiting and oppressing us for centuries? Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Carlos Martinez is here. And, you know, Carlos... We were we, we left off sort of talking about how the progressive movements in the U.S. and the West should be orienting themselves to uh, uh, conditions in their country, particularly as they're connected um, to these broader geopolitical dynamics that we've been discussing uh, this hour. And Jackie mentioned a moment ago uh, uh, the, the the Chinese uh, uh, poverty elimination program that, that lifted up, you know, uh, reported to 800 million people out of poverty. And when we talk about the accomplishments of China and things like this, I mean, these are things that are obscured, if not completely ignored in the, the U.S. Uh, corporate media and in the Western corporate media and uh, uh, the whole, I feel like China as a whole, frankly, is just sort of mystified in, in the minds of the people of the U S and the West, because I mean, in terms of the U S not only is there sort of a long history of uh, anti China sentiment and uh, uh, racist uh, discriminatory laws against Chinese people and against uh, uh, Asian folks in uh, uh, general. But I mean, there's just sort of a, 
it's a completely different historical and cultural context out of which uh, uh, China emerges that uh, uh, really, I think, can make it difficult for people in the West to uh, uh, sort of understand what's really happening. But actually, before we get too deep into that, we have a caller on the line here. Kier, tell us what's on your mind. Hello, good afternoon. I always get nervous when I call in, so sorry if I'm rambling. But I kind of had a, a couple of comments. Whenever I talk to my friends, just people in my circle about protesting or attitudes towards the future, something that always comes up is just, um, like, leave it in the hands of the youth, or the youth will take care of it, or, like, the youth have a bunch of energy. And while I don't necessarily, I don't disagree with that because I work with children and I definitely um, know their place in history and how they helped help to move progress for the country. But sometimes I find this sort of like a cop-out because sometimes I think like the youth of tomorrow, they can't lead us to a future if, they're, if they can't pay their rent. They're only focusing on finding a house. They're not going to be able to lead us to a revolution if they can't feed their own families in the future. And then I'm a younger millennial, like I'm not 30 yet, but I'm almost there. Um, so I kind of sometimes also see how Generation X and the boomers, not all of them, but just some of them, how they kind of got lazy or lackadaisical in the sense and just now we're in the position that we're in. And once again, I don't want to say it's all Gen X and boomers, so don't take it that way. But sometimes I just want to know, like, y'all's opinions on how older generations should be mentoring the youth in political education and things like that instead of just leaving it up to most of the youth have good attitudes so they'll take care of it. And then also, just real quick, I was talking to my aunt about it, and then she said she read an article that she said most of Gen Z is kind of leaning towards a conservative trend. I'm not saying they're full-on fascist or anything like that, but just one of my opinions or things like that. Thank you for taking my call. I'll see you later. Well, thank you, Kier. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Got a couple more folks on the line here. First up is Allie. Tell us what's on your mind. Hi, Sean. How are you doing? I wanted to say uh, my greetings to you, to uh, Jackie and, and Carlos. Um, and I do have about two questions. I think it's about two. Um, yes. Um, I wanted to ask Carlos um, if, if he has any opinion about um, the United States, well, actually the European Union um, asking Colombia to join NATO. Um, so I would like for him to, if he has any opinion on that, being that as he knows, um, as he's aware, uh, Gustavo Petro and uh, Francia Marquez are going to be the, you know, the new president and the vice president, and I just don't know what to make out of uh, after that, what is going to happen with those bases that the United States has in Colombia. Also, um, I wanted to know how the British people feel about United States controlling all facets of their life, because the fact is, for what happened in the United States, um, what is happening with Russia and, and the Europeans <laughs> waiting for the winter and they probably will be frozen when when the winters get here, and they're not going to be able to get that gas. How um, is the reaction on people on the street in 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 Britain? And my last question is uh, how the you know I'm a tennis aficionado. I like to watch tennis all the time, and one of the things that I just closed out and I didn't I have I I boycotted uh, Wimbledon for what they had done to the Russian and Belarus players. So um, how did uh, people in England have reacted to, to that? Thank you. Well, thank you, Ali. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, next up is Keith. Tell us what's on your mind. 
guys, uh, Jackie, uh, Sean, and your guest, uh, brilliant, one of the most brilliant ones. Um, as a person, a uh, Noam Chomsky uh, acolyte for a while, I think that this gentleman has uh, added another twist to Mr. Chomsky, Mr. Chomsky's uh, claim that there is only one party, the business party, and your guest has said that it's not even the business party, it's the war party, because all they have is debt peonage, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, taking wealth from other countries through imperial means, and the dollar as the world's currency reserve, and that's even going away. So I think it was quite apropos to refer to it as, as the war party. It, 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 you know, it, it, it's so profound that it just, the shift in the country is quite stunning, and I will leave it at that, and um, thank you for taking my call. Well, thank you, Keith. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, I briefly want to react to uh, uh, Kier's question about young people. Um, I see what you're saying, and I agree that it's a uh, it's a cop out if you just say, ah, well, the young people are handling it. You know, they got it all taken care of. We'll just, you know, I'll just go chill and sit down. Well, no, uh, young people like any other group of folks need to be organized. And see, this is the benefit of having a multi-generational struggle. I've been fortunate enough, and I know that I'm not alone in this, I've been fortunate enough to really uh, uh, work closely with and be in conversation and community with people who have been in struggle and been in the movement for decades. I mean, since they were teenagers and now they're in their 60s and their 70s. And so when you take that generations of wisdom and experience and know-how and understanding and ideological clarity and you pair that with the uh, uh, the energy and the vitality and the tenacity of young people. I mean, that's a truly, I think, beautiful thing to see unfold. And I think it makes uh, the movement itself that much more devastating. So it's true that the future belongs to the youth and that they are right now, as we speak, fighting uh, for their own future uh, uh, against a capitalist system that is hell bent on destroying it. But like anybody else, you know, young folks need to be organized. So if, if we're serious, about that, then we have to be serious about bringing uh, uh, younger folks into our organizations and to our movements very intentionally so that this uh, multi-generational piece can, you know, be as fruitful as it can be. But uh, uh, Carlos, I wanted to kick to you quite a bit there from our callers. So, you know, feel free to respond to it as you will. Thank you, Sean. And thank you very much to all the callers. Some really insightful points and some interesting questions. Uh, I'm not an expert by any means on, on Colombia. But, you know, what, what is clear is that for the last, you know, probably close to 70 years, Colombia has been the main, um, the main nexus, the main uh, launch point for U.S. military operations in the South American com uh, continent. Um, you know, Colombia has been, has already hosts U.S. military bases. Colombia has hosted any number of paramilitary groups that have been engaged in 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 proxy wars fought by the US in in Central and South America. Colombia has had a has had a very pernicious role in in destabilizing and opposing the socialist oriented progressive government in Venezuela. Um, so in that sense the the election victory of Gustavo Petro the to have for the first time in Colombian history, a, a 
left wing or a left oriented government, which, you know, I'm sure in, in real life, it may be forced to make all sorts of concessions. And, you know, and socialism isn't just a matter of, you know, getting elected, and then the capitalist class does what it's told. However, to have that kind of orientation, even to say, yes, we want to reestablish bilateral relations with the Maduro government in Venezuela, is a huge thing. And then if, if Lula manages to be elected later this year in Brazil as well, then it's like there's almost uh, a completion of a, of a left wave throughout Latin America, which can only be very favorable. So, yeah, I would com completely understand that the West would want Colombia to be aligned with NATO and even to join NATO. I very much hope that its new leftist orientation will mean that it won't do that and that it will start to pull away from U.S. influence, from U.S. hegemony, which you know we can see actually in, in a somewhat kind of parallel situation in Mexico that AMLO has been able to do. Yes, you know, um, that it's his his scope for action is somewhat limited, but at the same time, he's been able to lead Mexico in taking a, a more independent, sovereign stance and, you know, when it's necessary, standing up to the dictator of the United States. So I think that's really positive. So there were a few questions or a couple of questions around organizing people and convincing people. Um, the, the second caller asked, you know, how do British people feel about the US um, controlling so many aspects of their lives and imposing these policies? And, and, and what's the reaction of people on the street who are actually suffering from these policies, who are suffering from inflation, who are suffering from high food prices, who are suffering from high energy prices, and who are going to you know, continue to suffer and suffer more? And ultimately, I, you know, I, I think it comes down to, well, the, the last caller brought up Chomsky. And Chomsky wrote his book, Manufacturing Consent, I, I believe, in 1988. And that's 34 years ago, and it's it's only more relevant now than it was then. And and the media systems and the systems of thought control are only more sophisticated and only more pernicious than they were then. And you know, our job collectively, all generations, is to fight against those people, to make people understand um, that their interests don't lie with these fat cats, you know, with these billionaires in Wall Street. Um, or, or for that matter, in 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 central London, our interests lie with the oppressed masses of the world, the working classes of the world, um, and on on that basis, yeah, we should be standing with China. We should be standing with Iran. We should be standing with Venezuela. We should respect um, Russia's right to to um, sovereign development. We should respect Russia's right to not exist within the U.S.-led imperialist system. Yeah, okay, Russia's a capitalist country, but the reason it's under attack, the reason that uh, NATO's channeling this level of aggression against it is that Russia doesn't play the game that, the, that Washington wants it to play. Russia's not doing what Russia was supposed to do when the Soviet Union collapsed. You know, we were completely happy with Russia when Bill Clinton was in the White House and, and Boris, uh, Boris Yeltsin was in the Kremlin. When, when Russia was willing to go along with US foreign policy and when it was willing to adopt neoliberal economic policy and basically outsource its whole economy, then we had no problems with Russia. We helped Boris Yeltsin uh, fraudulently win elections. You know, the, the CIA was involved in that. 
we hate Russia now because Russia is standing up for itself. So for the working class, for the oppressed masses, for oppressed communities in the West, we just got to ask ourselves, uh, you know, are we going to are we going to let them get away with this? You know, are we going to let our governments, our ruling classes get away with this? Or are we going to unite with the masses of the world and stand up? You know, that's we need to break the manufactured consent. We need to have more conversations. We need to uh, have more media. We need to have more articles. We need to write more. We need to talk more. We need to protest more. We need to rally more. We need to educate more and break that manufactured consent. And I would just, um, you know, a final word is that I would just take some hope and some inspiration from the fact that increasingly that manufactured consent isn't effective in most of the world. You know, whereas it used to have a huge impact in Africa, in the Middle East, in much of Asia, in much of Latin America, in much of the Caribbean. These days, it doesn't count for very much anymore. And, you know, we in the West, maybe we're going to be slow to catch up, but I think we can catch up. Jackie Lugman. Definitely true. And I, and I have to say, as a member of Generation X, it's true. A, a large portion of this generation, of my generation, did become very conservative, partially because of the, uh, 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 of the capitalist excess that some folks were able to participate in and become middle class right that that we are struggling against now so so that people became uh, a part of that business class or they thought they were becoming a part of that business class by getting the nice house in the suburbs and you know the 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 the, the nice car or whatever and didn't realize that the trade off was not only uh their children's and grandchildren's future but uh, also getting nothing but war, endless, endless war and imperialism around the world. And that is a frustrating reality, I think. But it's also, again, you know, a, a, a point of organization and struggle that, that we must continue to seize on and bring in and listen to younger voices that are engaged in this struggle for their futures. That's a fact. That's a fact. And I mean, I'm thinking, you know, uh, Franz Fanon talked about this. Lots of people have sort of talked about, you know, the importance of this, of people really seizing the time and seizing the moment and uh, having the courage to uh, take up their historical duty to really change this world. And make no mistake, that is precisely what it is we seek to do. And it is precisely that which is necessary, because otherwise, all of the issues that we talk about on this show and that we organize uh, around on the ground will simply uh, continue to worsen. And I maintain that it is the people's social movements which will be the savior of the earth and humanity itself. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I want to thank Carlos Martinez so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.